Okay, I'm going to start with uh, some scriptures, and Josiah's going to put them on the board in the English Standard Version, and I'm going to read them in the New American Standard Version. And so if there's a word or two that's different, I actually kind of like that. I always, when I read the Bible, it depends on which Bible I'm reading, but if I'm just doing it on Bible Gateway, I actually put four translations in a column next to each other. For some reason, I can't handle five, but I can handle four uh, in terms of taking it in with my mind. But, you know, I like that little difference of, you know, like proclaiming instead of preaching or whatever, makes me engage the words a little better and uh, helps me get a little bit more out of it, I think. So I kind of like that. And uh, also, I'm, uh, you know, I, for... For decades, I've been familiar more, more with the New American Standard Bible than any other translation, and I'm trying to become more familiar with the English Standard Version since that is uh, the Bible we've chosen as what we would call our pew Bible here at Grace Christian Fellowship. So anyway, so the, the scriptures we're going to read uh, from, we're going to read from Mark, followed by Luke, followed by Matthew, uh, very parallel passages this morning. And so, uh, again, they'll be in the ESV, and um, I'll be reading them in the NASV. So turn with me, if you would, to um, Mark chapter 1. And before I read it, just in case, uh, you know, we, uh, one of the hardest things that happens as you build a church over the uh, years is some people came in in the first three years, some people came in in the next five years, some people came in in the last five weeks. And so you have people who know different things. So uh, it's probably better to run the risk of repeating ourselves, so there may not be a whole lot of people here that don't know what I'm about to share, but it's better to hear the same things over uh, than it is to have people who are not following So the first thing I want to make sure we all remember is that there are four Gospels that start the New Testament. The first three are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. And in theology, most words come from either Greek words or sometimes Latin words. So this this Synoptic actually comes from two Greek words. Optos or optic is what we get ophthalmology or optometry or whatever from, optics, and uh, and it just means to see. Then the prefix uh, S-Y-N in English or S-Y-M in English comes from the Greek prefix sigma upsilon nu, which would be pronounced something like shun. (laughs) But uh, my Greek professor used to always... uh, just shake his head, and I said, "Can't we just move on to translating?" Because I, he ne- I can't, could never tran- uh, say them right correctly. But uh, and and they insist, uh, those who study that, even though Greek is a dead language, so there's no recordings of it. There wasn't any recording devices uh, in, in ancient times, and uh, it's not. Uh, although there are some contemporary Greek words that have same roots and similarities and so forth, it's. You know, 5th century Greek to, to uh, 1st century Greek is, is what they call a dead language. But I guess they believe through uh, various linguistic studies and so forth that they actually know how it was pronounced. 
I'm just telling you, I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> and I never did well at that. Um, so when you see the word S-Y-N in English or S-Y-M, it just means together with. So for instance, an instant, for instance a symphony, S-Y-M, phonics is the word for sound, and a symphony is supposed to be a lot of sounds that go well together. So uh, the synoptic gospels are just a reference to the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to see Jesus in a similar light or similar points of view. Whereas John, having read all three of the others before he wrote his gospel, is intentionally bringing out a lot of points, especially about the deity uh, of Christ that the other three are not uh, emphasizing as much. He's, he's trying to emphasize some different things so that we get a more complete picture of Jesus. So uh, in, this, in some cases, when you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there will be passages like the ones we're going to read now that actually have uh, parallels that the same event is covered in all three Gospels. And, uh, but it's never quite worded exactly the same. And to get the full picture, it's good to read all three, which is what we're about to do. We are going to look today at... Uh, uh, Deanna, by the way, I needed a copy of the book, Follow Me, on the pulpit here, which I don't seem to have. Um, so um, I, I forgot that when I set this all up an hour ago or so. Um, so... Let's look in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. We're going to look at Jesus' initial calling of four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we're actually, when we get to Luke, gonna, uh, for no extra charge, I'm going to throw in Matthew, uh, who was, was originally Levi, but you don't have to pay extra for that. So, thank you. So, uh, let's get, get into this here. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. Hopefully you know that Galilee is the northern part of Israel during the time of Jesus. So Israel in the time of Jesus would be about the same size territory as from Lima to Cincinnati along I-75 uh, going 30 miles either direction or so. Uh, so Jesus came into Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel where... Uh, we know many things about the Jews in Galilee. They tended to be much more serious about biblical studies for kids and so forth than the, than the Judean Jews. And so uh, most Galilean Jews uh, memorized the, the uh, first five books of Moses by the age of 12 in the synagogue. Jesus grew up in that kind of environment. So when you hear preachers today say that Jesus called uh, uneducated men, when he called Matthew, or when he called Andrew, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're basing that on, they're taking for granted that the Pharisees are correct in Acts 4, when the Pharisees observed that they were uneducated men, that they're taking the Pharisees' opinion for it. But the truth of it is they weren't uneducated men. They were men who grew up, are, are, is there anyone here that's this biblically educated? They knew uh, the first five books of the Bible by, by memory. Anybody here want to has, has that down? 
and about 2,000 other verses. And in fact, you didn't get invited to study with the best rabbis. The, the fact that Paul uh, studied under Gamaliel, who was probably the leading Pharisee of his day, means that Paul probably had the whole Old Testament memorized by, as a teenager. So the idea that these are all uneducated men is, is a very common idea today, but it's actually not correct, just so you know that. Uh, it's just based on, that would be a little bit like if you take the devil's opinion for something, <laughs> which I would recommend against. Uh, it's probably, you know, there's lots of people's opinion you might not necessarily want to base your understanding of reality on. So after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at the door, at hand. Uh, it's right in, in our midst. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, not 20 years later, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And Zebedee rejoiced greatly that he had lost his two sons labor. No, well, probably not. But uh, we'll uh, just have to guess at that one. That's one of my questions for Jesus when I get to heaven. How, how excited was Zebedee? <laughs> I, I don't think probably much so. Um, so let's go to Luke's version of the same event, Luke 5. Uh, anybody who knows me knows this is probably uh, right toward the top of the list of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, the lake of Gennesaret is another name for the Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. All, that's all the same whenever you read that in the Bible. Diff different ways of saying one particular uh, body of water. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Of course, we know Simon as Peter and Cephas as well. And asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. By the way, the reason he was able to just get in Simon's boat and so forth is he already knew Simon and Simon already knew him. And Simon had, at this time was already a follower of John the Baptist. And likely, Jesus would have met these guys uh, even before they were associated with John the Baptist because uh, he was from Nazareth, they were from Capernaum. Those are towns right near each other. And all Jews from the northern part of Israel called Galilee traveled uh, three times a year to the southern part, to Jerusalem and Judea, to celebrate the great feasts that are listed in Leviticus 23 and so forth. 
And when they did so, because they were so prejudiced against the Samaritans, they actually went east, crossed the Jordan River, then went south on the east side of the Jordan River. When they got to Judea, they, they actually crossed over the Jordan River uh, back from the east to the west again uh, to go to Jerusalem so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans that much and the Samaritans hated them that much. And so uh, that makes the whole, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman and when he tells the parable of the good Samaritan, that makes it much more meaningful if you understand that, right? So um, they really uh, wouldn't go through Samaria because they didn't want to, they disliked the Samaritans that much they didn't want to run into any along the way that they might have to greet or something. And um, when they did so, therefore, they went on one highway that was very narrow, and they traveled in, in kind of a caravan style with the people from their own town and their nearby towns. So Jesus was uh, about 30 when he started his public ministry. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were likely uh, 18 to 20 range, or maybe even younger than that probably. Some people think John was as young as 14 when Jesus first called him. But they would have known each other even though Jesus would have been a dozen years older or so. Okay, just so. So then when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, which shows again that he already knows who Jesus is, because John the Baptist had already pointed out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Simon Peter had been there for that event. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. Who were their partners? James and John. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And by the way, I just love, uh, you know, when we use the word prodigal son, we kind of think, uh, we, we've come to think that prodigal means um, a bad morals or character or so forth, but prodigal means extravagant beyond practicality. And I love how, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't catch any fish all night. These are professional fishermen who live in a kind of economy where every day their breakfast, lunch, and dinner for themselves and their families are dependent on what they caught that night. So they, they, had, they had had a bad night. They, they, this, does, this did not happen to people like Simon and James and John and Andrew. They, they were professional fishermen. This is what they did for a living. They were already quite perplexed at that point. And then... Jesus tells them to go let down their nets in the deep water, which is the wrong place to be fishing. That's not where the fish are. The fish tend to go toward the shallow water in, uh, in the lake. And, uh, you know, and then they catch so many fish that the nets are start to break, and they have to call the other boats to help them. And even with the other boats helping them, there's so many fish that the boats are sinking. You know, that's, you know, so... 
you can kind of, you know, think through all what, everything that's happening here. This is an amazing event. Uh, you know, it was amazing that they didn't catch any fish all night in the first place. And then it's amazing that they catch so many fish that they can't even get them in the boats and the boats are sinking and they're having to make a decision. Should we let some of these fish get away so we don't sink the boat? You know, uh, But when Simon Peter saw that he fell down and saw, saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Hopefully you've had those kind of experiences with God yourself. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I love that. Some, of course, some takeaways, they left everything. That, you know, so they left their business. They changed vocations. And they changed the, the whole nature of their family relationships. They left their Zebedee. And uh, one of the versions mentions James and John and Zebedee's uh, servants and uh, um, I've read, read quite a bit about the economics of the time. And um, like even, so Simon and Andrew were among the poorest of the poor, but John and James were uh, just, they were still poor, but they were a little bit of a notch up. And like in many underdeveloped countries today, even some fairly poor people can occasionally afford a servant or whatever, and James and John's business was, uh, I wouldn't call them rich or prosperous, but enough that they had a few people working for them in their business. Okay, so that's kind of important. Let's go to later in the chapter of Luke for bonus coverage of his calling Levi, who becomes Matthew. And after, that's in verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed the tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. If you haven't ever thought about who, the, what a tax collector was and why the Gospels say, always call the tax, you know, the, say the tax collectors and the harlots, you know, we probably have a good feel for why people would consider someone who's a prostitute by trade to be a somewhat shady uh, business to be in. <laughs> you know, we probably still have a good feel for that. We probably wouldn't think, like, if we met someone that goes, hi, you know, my name's Bill Smith, and I work for the IRS. We probably wouldn't go like, "Ooh, don't!" I shook that. Hand. I need to go to the restroom and wash my hand. But they would have, <laughs> right? So, why is a tax collector uh, considered so evil? If you know the history of World War II or any other, or even how Alexander the Great set, set up his kingdoms that he conquered, many times a conquering country will actually set up a puppet government using nationals for that government as kind of a go-between. So the Nazis, the German Nazis, for instance, set up a thing called Vichy France, which were French collaborators uh, that governed underneath the Germans, but the French people who were, being, were conquered and being oppressed mostly had to deal with their own French countrymen in all kinds of governmental affairs. And believe me, they hated the Vichy French. 
That was the worst thing you could be. Was, so what a tax collector is, is actually someone who's cooperating with the Romans and oppressing the Israelites. So that would be considered in their mind worse than we would think of a drug dealer. Right? You know, you've all read uh, stories of World War II or whatever, and, you know, and there's, oh, they even have some, used to have some silly movies like uh, there was something Dawn, Red Dawn or something like, we're being conquered by some communist or whatever, and, and there's freedom fighters in the, in the mountains still holding out. Probably Bradbury loved those kind of movies when he was a kid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like the people who were cooperating with the oppressors would be the, considered the, the lowest of vermin. You understand what I'm saying? So that's important to understand. That's who Levi is. He's a scumbag. Isn't that nice that Jesus told him? And can you imagine uh, the dinners together when, uh, if you, when Jesus goes on to call Simon the Zealot? Do you know what a zealot was? You know, we see the political parties or the, the religious sects like Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth. A zealot was a religious sect who hated the Romans more than the Pharisees did. And the Sadducees actually cooperated with the Romans and said the best way to get more concessions and get Herod to build our temple and all these things is to kind of play along and not cause too much disturbance and, and you be, be inside the political process so that we can get as many concessions. The Pharisees hated that approach. They considered the Sadducees traitors. That's why Paul pits one against another when, in, in the book of Acts, remember? But the, the zealots were one step further. Uh, um, Barabbas would have been a zealot. The, the zealots were, they, they basically said, you know, we should band together and lie in wait and when a little battalion, you know, little uh, five or six Romans are going by on a mission at night and, and ju jump on them from the, and kill them. Like, we need to get the, mur the Romans out of here by murder and we're going to use guerrilla warfare and kill as many of them as we can one way go. That would be who Simon the Zealot would, was. And in Simon the Zealot's world, the worst person possible, a little bit worse than the devil himself, would have been Levi the tax gatherer and Zacchaeus and other tax gatherers. And then they became part of the same home group. <laughs> Except they didn't have a home. They, it was an itinerant home group. <laughs> so, uh, I wonder what kind of discussions they had sometimes. Hopefully they stayed off politics. And, and Levi gave a big, big reception for him at his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees... And their scribes, um, trying to see that clock, but it's got a lot of light on it. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? By the way, part of Pharisee thinking is very prevalent in fundamentalism today, is what I would call they were environmentalists. Like, Part of the way you stay godly is to stay away from God, ungodly people. You don't go to school with them. You don't know them. You're, you know, you're not friendly to them. And, uh, and you don't, you stay out of those kind of environments. 
So, um, so Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's an important thought in this, uh, what we're talking today. Keep that thought in mind. Let's go over to Matthew 4, 17 through 22. From that time, what time? Matthew 4, 17 is right after um, Jesus just spent 40 days in the wilderness uh, fasting and being tempted by the devil. Now, it's actually after Matthew 4, chapter 1, or or Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 3, and the first half of chapter 4. So I'm going to give you just a quick review of that. In Matthew 1, uh, because what, what, what's important when we, when we encounter this calling of, of Matthew's version of his calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John is to see it in the context that Matthew has already painted. Matthew has made it so by the time uh, Jesus starts to call his disciples, hopefully you're beginning to realize who Jesus is and that he's not just some guy making disciples like Gamaliel did or like uh, any of the Pharisees and the scribes and, and even the, uh, um, the synagogue officials. All of, you know, discipleship was a way of life in the ancient world from about uh, the uh, oh, 8th, 10th century B.C. on. It wasn't like something like in today's uh, Christianity when people... Well, when I talk to other pastors and so forth that we offer personal discipleship, they, they all think that's like bizarre. Like, what? Like, that's too labor-intensive. <laughs> why, why would you do that? But that was just the biblical way of learning, period. That's how Joshua learned from Moses, etc. all the way. That's, that's how the Greek, you know, both, uh, you probably know who... Uh, uh, Socrates was, but uh, from Bill and Ted, uh, Socrates had two disciples named uh, uh, Plato and who's the other one I'm thinking? Aristotle. Thank you. And uh, Aristotle actually tutored Alexander the Great. He was uh, Ale- Philip of Macedon, Alexander's father, hired Aristotle to be his son's full-time teacher and discipler. Uh, when he was growing up, okay? So, uh, discipleship is just a basic thing in the ancient world. It's like not this new church idea that some churches have come up with nowadays. Um, Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from, from, uh, from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So I started to, and then I got lost my train of thought, to kind of give us what Matthew has given us. So in Matthew 1, Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. 
And remember, he kind of sums it up by saying from Abraham to David were 14 generations and David to the captivity were 14 generations and from the captivity to Jesus were 14 generations. Three groups of 14 generations or 42 generations or six times seven, all important biblical numbers quite intentionally. Okay, so um, what Matthew has first started with in chapter one, Matthew wants you to come out knowing that we've been waiting for the true seed of Abraham and Jesus is, that, is it. We've been waiting for the true son of David, the king who will reign forever and Jesus is it. So by Matthew, the end of Matthew 1, you should know Jesus is the true seed of Abraham and everything said about the seed of Abraham in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is the true son of David, the king of Israel, and everything that's said about Israel, David, and its kings, and the descendants of David, you know, the Daniel 7 passage and every other thing uh, is, is all about Jesus. Then in chapter 2, he gives us, you know, the birth of Jesus. And, uh, and so we see, uh, I'm going to pull this up here a little bit. You know, we see all kinds of things about Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, including that there are these wise men who have nothing to do with Israel coming from a far eastern country, and by the providence of God, they know to go look for this guy. And they travel probably from what somewhere, like no one knows exactly where they came from, but it was probably somewhere from near like Pakistan, And that's kind of hard for us to appreciate because, you know, I drive to places like Michigan and Tennessee in one day all the time, but this would have been a journey of a lifetime. It would have been, it would have cost all their finances. It would have been super dangerous. Uh, um, There's some popular Jesus movies. I'm trying to think of the one. Uh, Isn't it it the one that's about uh, the... uh, the, it's called the nativity that the, you know, the wise men have a little fight and the one guy doesn't want to go, you know, like, what are you, are crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, like, like, in other words, I like my creature comforts. I'm not going to go on this journey. But, you know, this guy, in my Matthew 2, you understand, this guy is so important that God let wise men from, from, I don't know, two or 3,000 miles away know in a star to announce it and so forth. And they came, um, you know, then Herod knows that there's prophecies about a king, and he's trying to, to, uh, to kill him. And then the angels warn the men not to go back to Herod. Then Herod, of course, wipes out all the, the children. And, you know, there's just, uh, and of course, uh, the angel wakes up Joseph and tells him to flee to Egypt because it wouldn't be proper to, to, for Jesus not to have gone to Egypt because out of Egypt I've called my son. And what Matthew's trying to get make sure you know is this is the, the new Israel. Jesus is Israel. And just like Israel had to go to Egypt and then be called back, so, so much to Christ. So there's all, all kinds of things. Then in Matthew 3, John the Baptist announces who this guy is and... and uh, and if, and if so, all these things, you know, the angel tells Mary who he is and Joseph, uh, 
all the way through to John the Baptist, but finally God the Father himself says out loud, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus starts his ministry by doing what Israel started with. Israel went 40 years through the wilderness, and Jesus goes 40 days through the wilderness, again showing that he is the true meaning of Israel. He is the real Israel. And uh, so when, when Jesus says, follow me, it's not like, no, if it, like I'm just going to pick on Bradbury because he knows how much I love my thing. It's not like if Bradbury said, follow me. If, you know, if I was doing a job with Bradbury or something, and he said, follow me, I would be glad to follow him. But I probably wouldn't, you know, fall down and say, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. <laughs> I, I might say, depart from me because I can't keep up with your work ethic or something. But I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't be like overwhelmed uh, by like, this guy is the most amazing human being that's ever been on the planet. Matthew wants you to understand by the time this passage happens that uh, it's not just some ordinary guy that's saying, follow me. He's already given you four and a half chapters of, who, of how great this guy is. And we've seen everybody from the wise men to uh, the angels to uh, the genealogy point to him to, you know, to finally God the Father himself saying, this is my beloved son, which is a quote from Isaiah, I think it's chapter 42 if I remember. All right, so... Then Jesus gives them this great invitation called, follow me. And so uh, against that, we have what we have today where people say, uh, pray this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. And the Bible never says pray this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. Um, and if you pray, pray this prayer, there's a lot of teaching on, a, on an idea called eternal security. And I do believe in the Reformation doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. But I do not believe in the modern idea of eternal security the way most people understand it. That if I punched a ticket, I went forward at an altar call, or I held my hand up when they said, everywhere I closed, <laughs> you know, and I prayed this prayer that no matter who I am and how I live and what I do with Jesus the rest of my life, I've punched a ticket to heaven. So in comes uh, this book. Uh, let me give us a little context. I'm going to actually spend the last 12 minutes that I have reviewing this book that's called Follow Me by David Platt. Now, uh, I was going to start a series, which I hope to start next week, on uh, the wisdom literature with special focus on the Psalms. If I get far enough, I might also include two or three weeks on the Proverbs, but I'm going to limit the series to 12 weeks, so we'll see if I can get through the Psalms in 12 weeks. Uh, obviously, we're not going to study every Psalm, but we're going to study categories of Psalms and some representative sad, uh, uh, examples. And we're going to spend a whole week next week just reviewing the whole Bible and where the wisdom literature fits into the whole Bible. Next week will be a very, very good message. But the reason I wasn't ready for that this week is Josiah reminded me about a week ago that we had on the Tuesday night meeting, which uh, we have a Tuesday night book club, book, what do you call it, group discussion that Josiah leads on, about evangelism. And then there's a Thursday one that... that um, 
Robbie leads about marriage, and we picked both books for the marriage right off the bat. For the evangelism one, we only picked a book by Jim Peterson called Evangelism as a Lifestyle, which we just finished up. So I was reminded that I need to pick the second book, and I'd had this book in mind for months, but I hadn't taken time to read it yet. So I quickly read uh, about 60, about two-thirds of this book this week, and I'm going to finish reading it hopefully by Monday night. So I can tell us this. This is the book for Tuesday night going forward. And we, have, we bought enough copies this week. I think we bought 28 or 29 copies, which is enough that all the elders and their wives of the church are getting a copy because I'm going to ask all of them to read this book. And uh, any of them that could read some of it by tomorrow night's discussion about the book would be great. But <laughs> if you can get any of it read. Um, if you can't, that's okay. Um, and we, uh, Deanna's put uh, Noelle in charge, right? Noelle, where is she? Uh, there she is. Uh, Noelle will have a clipboard because we really need to stop giving away books and having people sign up books that never get paid for and so forth. So she's going to take your name, and we know where you live. <laughs> and uh, so you, the, the cost of the book is $10, or because I'm wanting husbands and wives to be enticed to have separate copies for themselves so they don't have to share it, uh, it's two for 15 $10 for one or two for 15 And uh, we will more than cover our costs because we paid about $7 a piece for them. Um, and whatever profits there are, will go into expanding how many books we have to, to give away and so forth. Because we, you know, we're trying to have more of the books come back to us <laughs> or get paid for and, and not just get borrowed, which in, in then inadvertently ends up in there being stolen. Uh, but no one actually means to steal them. They just never bring them back. But uh, anyway, so I, I want to just give a quick review of this book a little bit. Um, I love this book. Um, some of you know who David Platt is, and some of you know who Francis Chan is. Some of uh, people who know me pretty well are quite surprised that I love this book because in general, I have not liked Francis Chan's books, especially his book on the Holy Spirit which I thought was a fairly lame approach to the Holy Spirit. And he actually gives a Sabellian a, a, a definition of the Trinity, which is actually a heresy in the, in the book and not very good. However, the introduction by Francis Chan uh, in this book is excellent. Uh, and partly it's about why Francis Chan walked away from the mega church that he was pastoring and decided to renounce the whole mega church seeker-sensitive thing in, and started searching for something more biblical and joined a small community of Christians in San Francisco where they go out and preach the gospel and, and disciple and, and, uh, and why he renounced the whole megachurch thing, <laughs> um, which I found quite, in, in, quite well written, a very good, very good little introduction, even though it's a little long for an introduction, but who am I to complain? <laughs> uh, then uh, David Platt, a lot of you know, he was first famous for a book called Radical, which to, in my view actually just kind of described a couple steps toward what normal Christianity should be. Uh, and then he wrote an also famous book on a radical view of community, uh, that, and I forget what that was called. And then this, then this is his, uh, not so recent, but his third book, I think this is from like 2011, so that's, for me, that's a current event, but not for most people. Um, so. 
In any case, uh, he kind of really gets into this whole idea of follow me. And I got five minutes to give us some quotes. The fir first chapter is called Unconverted Believers. And I'm a little impressed with this, uh, just so you know that he's not some nutcase or whatever. Not only is he a well-respected pastor, he's one of the leaders of a very respected organization called the Gospel Coalition. Some of you know that uh, organization. And, I mean, the guy is very well-respected. Um, and so I'm just going to read you some quick quotes from the book. Jesus beckoned these men to leave behind their professions, possessions, dreams, ambitions, family, friends, safety, and security. He bid them to abandon everything. Um, I'm going to try to, i got to be more selective. Um, so he tells this whole story of someone being called, uh, being told to just, they, they were a little bit afraid of heaven and hell, and so they said, well, just invite Christ into your life. And then he, go, uh, he, he describes this whole just, just uh, ask Jesus into your heart and then you're, uh, that's all you need to do and check that box and you're good to go no matter how you live for the rest of your life. So he says, yet this story represents deception that has spread like wildfire across the contemporary Christian la landscape. Should it alarm us that the Bible never mentions such a prayer? Should it concern us that nowhere in Scripture is anyone ever told to ask Jesus into their heart or to invite Christ into their life? Um, they are told they are Christians and their salvation is eternally secure. It is not true, he says. Uh, we, we have subtly and deceptively minimized the magnitude of what it means to follow Christ. We replace challenging words from Christ with trite phrases in the church. We have taken the lifeblood out of Christianity and put Kool-Aid in its place so that it tastes better to the crowd, and the consequences are catastrophic. Multitudes of men and women at this moment think that they are saved from their sins when they are not. Um, do you remember the words of Jesus near the conclusion of his most famous sermon? Then he goes into the whole Matthew 7, not, any, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Lord. Uh, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do, do the will of my Father. Um, so, let's see. He quotes, lots of quotes from Jesus, like, if any of you does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, he says, even the demons believe, but he goes on, only those who are obedient to the words of Christ will enter the kingdom of Christ. He has a section called Dangerously Deceived. And he's, uh, then uh, another, next, uh, he says spiritual deception is dangerous and damning. And he, uh, the next section is called The Significance of Repentance. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth in his ministry in the New Testament is clear, repent. It's the same word that John the Baptist proclaims in preparation for Jesus' coming. And he goes on to talk about it being the first thing that Peter said at the end of his sermon in Acts 2, which John did an excellent sermon on many years ago. Uh, repentance is a rich biblical term that signifies an elemental transformation in someone's mind, heart, and life. When people repent, they turn from walking in one direction to running in the opposite direction. From that point forward, they think differently, believe differently, feel differently, love differently, and live differently. Jesus' call to repentance then was a summons for them to renounce sin and all dependence on the self for salvation. 
Fundamentally, repentance involves renouncing a former way of life in favor of a new way of life. Then he goes on to talk about idolatry, and he says, do we actually think we have fewer idols to let go of in, in our repentance than you know ancient people did? Um, when we become followers of Jesus, we make a decided break with an old way of living and take a decisive turn out of a new way of life. We literally die to our sin and to ourselves and, and so forth. Now, here's kind of what I'm kind of, and then the next chapter, I wish I had given myself more time to cover it because it's about adoption. And the, you know, uh, if you care to study adoption, there, uh, go back on the podcast. It's probably under uh, the Sunday Bible studies because I gave a message about a year ago or so on adoption. Very important, very important message and very important concept. Um, but he tells the story of them adopting their son, Caleb, from Kakistan. Kak- Kak- I don't know how to say it. Kakistan. Um, and he just talks about how he didn't know to be looking to be adopted. He didn't know he didn't belong to a family. This was something they totally took the initiative. And what he's basically saying is uh, God is the one that came looking for us. We didn't even know we were lost. Reminds me of my son, Victor, who uh, is coming over for lunch today. Uh, many, many times when he was young, he would get lost in some great carnival or somewhere, and sometimes it would take us two or three hours to find him. But the funniest thing about Victor is by the time I found him, you know, like he's like three or four years old or two or whatever. By the time we found him, I'm actually like crying and no, you know, and everything. He didn't know he was lost. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how we are. So anyway, um, we have enough copies of this just today. Uh, we'll be getting more copies by next week. Today, we only have enough copies. If you think there's a good chance you'll attend some or all of the Tuesday nights, then the, the copies that we bought are for you today. So make sure if you have been attending Tuesdays now, because we're doing a new book, if you have not been attending Tuesdays, you can jump in right now. Uh, one last point, because uh, I'm out of time. Some of this comes from an emphasis. You know, in the um, years from 1991 to 2003, uh, I was not planning a church or, or in the ministry, uh, except for our a few of those years, I was teaching a Bible study at a bigger church and that sort of thing. But um, during those years, I kind of was focusing on my marriage and raising kids. And, you know, our culture changed a lot uh, in terms of narcissism and selfishness and watered down Christianity. Because, of course, the church growth movement of the late 70s led to the mega church movement of the 80s, which... which in my opinion, has been a great watering down and minimizing and reducing of, of the Christian gospel. So uh, in the early years of this church, John Weiss and Jason Hale and I used to sit on the back deck and talk about like what the Lord wanted us to do for our liturgy and all sorts of emphasis. And one of the things that had happened is in the late 90s, I coached inner city baseball teams and God began to break my heart for really troubled people. However, when we first started this church, I had a tendency to spend hours of discipling people about how to live life when in fact, um, often what they really needed to 
uh, here is they needed to be more rightly related to Christ in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, John was used of the Lord to bring to our attention in, in the early years that we need to be much more gospel-centered and that we need to examine deeply the reductionist gospel that, that this book is addressing. Uh, and this, this, uh, so if you notice every, our songs, our messages, everything we do at Grace Christian Fellowship is quite gospel-centered that was an emphasis John brought to us in the early years that as soon as I heard it, it was kind of like, you know, like, oh, I could have had a V8. You know, I realized that I was trying to disciple people out of their bad, bad financial management skills or their bad relational conflict skills or their bad work ethic or so forth who were less than fully converted to the biblical Christian gospel. And you can't do that. Now, people who don't know Jesus can make some improvements in some areas of their life for all the wrong reasons. And they can sometimes look more normal and healthy than some people in the church because God loves to work with broken and troubled people. But one of the things that we learned and, and that we try to stay focused on is the first thing that we do when we're trying to help people and help people grow is stay focused in the gospel. And we've been looking for good gospel books uh, for, um, I guess, a little over 15 years now. And we found today's gospel by Walter Chantry that we use. We found John Stott's Basic Christianity. And now we found this one. And there aren't a lot of good books on the gospel that I can really recommend. There's a few others that, that I'm not going to say because we don't have them on our list, but I like them. But there's a lot of them that really aren't good books, and they're gospel light. You know, we use the Nine Marks People's book on church membership. Unfortunately, they have a, 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 a book on the gospel which is super gospel light, and I wouldn't recommend it. It's, a, it's very much the pietistic reductionist, only the spiritual side of life gospel. It's not not very good book. Um, so this is actually a really, really, really good book on the gospel. So uh, this is going to be the Tuesday night book, and we're going to discuss Monday night in the elders meeting whether we're going to make this our 2019 book of the year, which we never got around to announcing yet, and I'm hoping we will. But if <laughs> if some of the other guys have a better book in mind or something, I, we're going to, I'm going to we'll at least discuss it Monday night. We'll let you know next week if we decided this is the book of the year. But this is a book of the year. And uh, follow me, subtitled A Call to Die, A Call to Live, David Platt. A lot of you know who David Platt is. So uh, that's all I have to say today. And we will be back in five minutes to uh, worship.